Welcome to yet another episode of Shortcast over Coffee. In 1907, Anna H. Sturler boarded a ferry, slipped on a banana peel, and demanded $250 in compensation from the boat's operators. Three doctors had examined her, she claimed, and told her she needs an operation. She received $150, a significant sum at the time, although less than $500 she received after her first banana peel incident, a fall on the train station steps at the 125th Street and Park Avenue. Not six months went by after that, a New York Times reporter wrote, before Mrs. Turla was once more in trouble with these arch foes of hers, banana peels. In total, Anna Sturla received $2,950 from 17 accidents in four years. In 11 cases, Sturla blamed banana peels. When the Times wrote about her, Sturla was on trials for making fraudulent complaints. But for years, she was taken seriously. After all, many New Yorkers suffered similar injuries. Slipping on a banana peel is a vintage cartoon gag, but its origins were not just slapstick comedy. Before it became a comedy trope, banana peels menaced New Yorkers for decades. This is how bad the trash situation was in the early 1900s. Today, all we need to do is segregate waste and the trucks come to pick it up on certain days of the week like clockwork. But how did we get here? That's exactly what I'm going to talk about with my guests today. We have Patricia Starch and Kathleen Sullivan, authors of the book Politics of Trash on the show today. Patricia is a professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration and Policy at the State University of New York at Albany. And Kathleen is an associate professor of political science at Ohio University, both experts in the field of political science, public policy and law. So without further ado, let's get into the conversation. Hello, Kathleen. Hello, Patricia. Thank you for joining my podcast. Thank you for having us. So Kathleen and Patricia, I was looking, uh, looking up your book, Politics of Trash. And what really struck me was the background of the authors. Um, Patricia, you are a professor of political science. Uh, you deal with a variety of topics in your research. And Kathleen, you are also a professor of political political science, again, dealing with a variety of issues. What brought you guys together in the first place? I remember when we met. Do you remember, Patty? I do remember. Uh, we were introduced by my colleague at Ohio University named Julie White, who had gone to grad school with Patty. And we were both finishing up our dissertations. And Julie said, you two should really get to know one another. Did you ask her why? Uh-huh. And what was the answer? Well, the uh, answer is that Kathleen and I were working on something very similar at the time. We were both studying family in the role of family in politics and in law. And so for political scientists, this is something that's seen often as very different, right? Because we study these formal actors and formal institutions and families aren't a part of politics and governing. So what, what do we think we're doing? And that's actually how we met. And that's actually how we started on working on garbage as well. That is so interesting. Uh, you know, everybody knows this whole family structure is, uh, is something that the government does to have uh, some rules and regulations in a country. It's more of a political thing, but but I want to dive deep into uh, what your research brought out to the to the public. What were your some of the interesting findings about the relationship between family and politics? Well, in my research, I looked at the role of uh, family in American public policy, not in family policies like welfare, but in policies like immigration in policies like agriculture and in policies like tax. And in these policies, government is using the family to get things done. So it's using family to determine who can come into the country. It's using fam family to decide how much you're paying in taxes and what kind of tax breaks you get. And it's using family to sell these very big, very expensive agricultural policies. So family was an important way that we, we do public policy in America, but not a way that political scientists talk about it. Kathleen, did you want to talk about yours? 
Sure. Uh, my first project was on uh, married women's property rights in the 19th century. And I looked at the prior condition condition of coverture where married women could not own property. They didn't even have a legal identity. And that got reformed through property rights. But what I acknowledged was that judges at the time were acknowledging was that the rules of coverture actually did very important work, such as a setting a requiring that a husband have an obligation to take care of the members of the household. So the idea there is that the governments required husbands to do these things so the government didn't have to. And that's what Patty and I connected on. We wrote an article where we said that the the government used family in 19th century law and 20th century policy in very similar ways that in both cases, families were a resource of government to, to accomplish things. Yeah. And now with the whole, you know, socioeconomic situations changing with more and more women joining the workforce, uh, has there been any reform in, in those laws? Oh, the laws that I studied? Yes, yeah. those were all reformed a long time ago. So that's back in the past. But what I did want to take away from it is that government has always been invested in being sure that things get done, such as, uh, you know, people uh, being taken care of, like with things we would think of as welfare now were accomplished through the family. And then those functions got transferred to the administrative state or in Patty's work, got transferred in different ways to have families accomplish them. Yeah, this is resonating with uh, with one particular Republican candidate who wants to bring back the family structure in America. And I kind of see why. Yes, yes, right. And so there's always been this sense uh, that when families succeed, then we have less government, right? So government steps in when families fail is kind of this idea, right? So Kathleen kind of shows, well, that's not exactly the case. Exactly the case. And I say, you know, something very similar, right? So there's, you know, government has a lot riding on American families. And we tend to think about like, oh, there's government. And then I go home to my private space and have my private life. And that's not actually the way it is. Yeah, I kind of want to know what you guys have uh, to say about, you know, the relationship between family and the prosperity of a country? Is it better for a country to have more families or or does it not really matter in this day and age? I think I would just be speculating, but I would say, you know, it's better when uh, government invests in its families without such a strong sense of what that family looks like. Right. So there's always been and one of the things that, you know, there is no single definition of what counts as a family. So even within the tax code, which is massive, there's multiple definition of family, multiple definition of children. Like, so what counts here doesn't count there. And then when you look across policies, it gets even more complicated. And so I think, you know, trying to decide families get this or families get that and then government becomes very invested in defining that particular family because it's seen as a scam if, you know, people are living together in a way that they're trying to get benefits. And so I think if we, you know, uh, countries succeed or the best way, you know, happiness prevails when we don't put so much into a particular notion of what that family is because you're stuffing people into a box they may not fit into and they're structuring their lives in a way that may not work for them and then, you know, for society as a whole. Kathleen, do you have a take? I think, um, I don't think I'm prepared to quite answer the question that you asked, except that the takeaway for me is something Patty has referred to already, which is that family is not as private as we think it is. And that's the real lesson from our work from the work we did, you know, 20 years ago and the work we continue to do now, that things we think are private and refuges from government are actually related to uh, carrying out public purposes. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, when government intervenes or gives so much work to someone who has a family, it makes divorces so much more complicated, right? So you have to have a policy for family and then you have to have a policy when the family doesn't quite work out. Uh, yes. Very, very interesting thoughts. Uh, so now we spoke about how you guys met uh, and, you know, it was the relationship between family and public policy. Uh, how did it lead to something like garbage? 
That's a great question because we did not set out to write a book about garbage or about corruption. We kind of building off with Kathleen said cared very much about the resources that governments use to accomplish their objectives. And so many people had told us so many times that family isn't political, that this isn't something that's involved with government. And we really wanted to say, okay, so how does government solve a problem? What resources do they use? We both know they use family. They've used family in the past. But if we take a particular problem like garbage or any, you know, problem in, in society, and we think about how do governments go about solving that problem? What resources do they rely on? Both the formal kinds of resources that we as political scientists talk about. So that's government actors, like officials, that's agencies, that's laws and ordinances they pass. But it's also unofficial and informal resources they may rely on, like families. And then in our book, like corruption and like gender and racial hierarchies, that they're using things that we don't necessarily think governments do and we don't necessarily approve of or think are very kind of democratic resources. And the reason we ended up with garbage is that we wanted to get down to the very basics of governing. So instead of looking at the federal government, we looked at local governments because that's where a lot of governing happens, but it's very, very close to people's lived experience. It's very basic. And so we tried to find, a, or we looked around for policies that uh, provided basic public services. We were down to garbage collection, water provision, and sewerage. So those were our three choices we decided among. Yeah, great point. Because I was having a conversation. I had uh, the mayor of Carmel, Indiana on the show once. And uh, he is uh, he is quite the change maker. Uh, he basically took off all the traffic lights in Indiana and uh, put roundabouts. Uh, and I was asking him, you know, you have done so much for the city of Indiana. Uh, do you not want do you not want to run for the president? Uh, and he was like, uh, you know, in DC, uh, if you move to DC, you're you're kind of siloed and yes, you have a bigger impact, but like you mentioned, you know, the, the lot of the governing happens in in local bodies. And he said he's extremely satisfied because he gets to see the change uh, that he implements. And and that's a that's a great point, Kathleen. You come up with uh, areas that you want to focus on, like water and, and sewer and trash. Uh, so along this period of time, did you realize that, you know, politics is everywhere? It's not just in families. It's not just in policymaking, but th the, the roots of politics are so deep that you just can't ignore it or avoid it. Yes, that that is a great point. And ultimately, that's what we came to through this work, what was so remarkable to us in writing this book is that people think about trash collection, like, you know, so Thursday night in my neighborhood, all everybody rolls their trash bin out, you know, at the same time, you can almost hear the bins rolling down the street, and they put it in the in the same bins, and they take it up the next morning, it's like clockwork, you could set your watch by it. And nobody is upset about it. And nobody thinks about this is government making me do something I don't want to do. So one of the remarkable lessons in studying garbage is how much power government has to, to make change and then how that power can disappear so that we all do these things and we don't even think about it as political. And to me, that was one of the most remarkable findings of this book. Like, this is this really political thing that brought down mayoral administrations. And here we all just go about doing it all the time. Yeah, I have a I have an inter interesting uh, story to say about how I got to know of you guys. Uh, so I was researching on, uh, you know, banana, you know, how 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 come all the supermarkets in America have the same exact Cavendish banana? And I was just reading about the history and I realized how uh, America used to be really obsessed about bananas in like the, uh, I, I think, early 19th century or so. And it became a problem in, in New York and it became a, a huge problem in the sense that, you know, people started to uh, 
just fall over walking on banana peels and stuff. And I just want to read this article from the Atlas Observer. Uh, it's a little long, but uh, just bear with me. A lone banana peel on a sidewalk, it's yellow color, practically a hazard sign, doesn't seem very threatening. But in the late 19th century, trash in New York City piled up ankle or knee deep. The city did have a department of street cleaning created in 1881. But this was the era of corrupt Tammany Hall politics and jobs were handed out on the basis of party, of party loyalty, often to absentee workers who misused funds. Uh, and it goes on to say accounts and photos from the, from the time are stunning. New Yorkers threw their trash in the street where no one picked it up, leading to city, leading the city to release wild pigs to eat the refuse. Dead animals lingered in gutters for days. In this environment, discarded banana peels rotted into slippery messes and mottled into a camouflaging brown. I mean, it, it quite paints a picture of the city of New York back in those days, right? Uh, some of the things that we take for granted, um, I know downtowns are sometimes filthy and... But, I mean, going back in time, uh, this was this was remarkably different from what it is now. What 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 were some of your observations from from that time? You know, it's it that is such a great story that you shared. We have never focused on banana peels, and yet, as you were reading it, I could see where a focus on banana peels could bring out all the problems that it comes from and that it then presents. So. I had a similar moment, um, as that passage indicates, when Patty and I were in New Orleans, and we were reading about these efforts to get the program up and running, and they tried to contract out, and that failed, and then they tried to collect garbage through the Department of Public Works, and it was terrible, and we were reading details of how awful it was, and we took a break to go for lunch, and we were standing at a streetlight, and I said, we were so engrossed in the archival research that I turned to Patty and I said, I can't believe any of this works. Like it was like what a monumental feat it was to be just standing on a sidewalk that was clean with a traffic light. Like the city had to accomplish so much to get to that point. It really makes you appreciate how much work is required to get there. And the descriptions that we read, you know, what Kathleen was talking about, there was garbage piled up to 16 feet high in vacant lots. And there were dead animals that were left in the streets and people would throw their garbage out onto the streets. And so you could literally not walk through the streets or the wagons couldn't pass through the streets. So it was hard to get through these spaces. They smelled terrible. And then, of course, disease is, you know, spreading because of it. So these were not, you know, I, you know, we we do these historical, you know, you think about these historical shows that you might see on TV and it looks like such a lovely place. But I think we would be very uncomfortable and it would be very unpleasant if we were to go back in history before yeah. these, this, yeah. these programs. Yeah, I don't have an exact reference, but uh, I remember reading this article once which said that, you know, people used to. Um, really poop on next to a water body uh, back in those yeah. days. And the the water used to come from the same source. So uh, one or two weeks before there would be an announcement saying that, hey, for the next two weeks, don't uh, or whatever. And then like, it's, it's crazy to imagine how those times would have been like, um, and these 16 feet, files that you're talking about they're not landfill right they're not dedicated no. spots they were just no. spots yeah. yes wow. yes so if there's an empty lot by your house it might it might have you know a story and a half of garbage in it hmm. uh, this is the situation in a lot of third world countries where people would just throw trash on each other's lots was that the situation ever or not really that people would just throw garbage on other people's lots yeah I don't know if they were throwing it on, on each other's lots. They were throwing it into bodies of water. They were throwing it in the streets. They were throwing it in empty lots. And they were putting it in their own yards and burying it in the outhouse outside once once they had indoor plumbing. Hmm. Wow. Uh, I, I noticed that 
your book talks about the, the politics of trash, but uh, you specify a particular timeline in the book uh, and it ends in 1929. And I want to get to know the rationale behind stopping it at 1929. We intended to go farther, but we got so engrossed in the uh, varieties of programs in the cities we were studying that we went broader rather, rather than forward and decided to compare cities garbage collection programs in their early years. And so we had started out with just three cities, which was uh, Pittsburgh and New Orleans and San Francisco. And we broadened it to study more cities in the South, for example, to make sure that New Orleans wasn't just a particular uh, southern uh, yeah, out, like an outlier yeah 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 uh you know that that brings me to the question why not new york city because new york city was this bustling uh <laughs> place even back then right uh and and you chose something like a pittsburgh i mean pittsburgh was a huge city by the way back in those days it's not as big now but when uh, it was the steel era i think pittsburgh was probably the second or the third biggest city in the us i was i was just reading an article um uh, but but why not new york city we actually avoided new york city and boston and chicago on purpose cuz we didn't want to tell the story of these very well known very exceptional cities so we kind of want to step down to like the pittsburgh and you know st louis and new orleans which were very important cities but they weren't the stars at that time in the united states and that was intentional because this was a problem that cities across the country had to deal with. You know, all cities had to deal with, you know, more and more people moved to cities. There was more and more trash. So how are they going to fix this problem? And so we kind of wanted to focus on the fact that this was a common problem that all kinds of cities had to deal with. And focusing on New York, you end up telling the story of New York uh, more than we would by telling the Pittsburgh story. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so now I want to go back in time um to around that period and uh, you were mentioning about how people would just throw their waste in uh, water bodies and and so on and so forth was there a system like even a rudimentary system back in those days on how to collect and dispose trash uh, like yes. i was reading um department of street cleaning right 1881 in new york city uh, but what was the situation in these three cities at the time so what what would happen before they had formal garbage collection programs was that they a lot of these cities had boards of health and they had been in operation for decades. And so the board of health might be authorized to hire out scavengers and on their own, they could maybe address some really egregious spots, but it wasn't citywide garbage collection. It was more like treating health hazards and the boards of health recognized they still didn't have a lot of capacity to do the work that they wanted to do, but they definitely knew what needed to be done, right? They knew there needed to be horses and carts. They knew that as the carts passed down the streets with garbage, you needed to cover the carts so the garbage didn't just spew all over the streets as it rattled down the street. I mean, there was so much knowledge in those years before the 1890s. It just wasn't being implemented. Yeah, and there was no sanitation expert back in those days who would just come in and research and, you know, tell the government what is the best way to go. No, there this. were, there were, that's the thing. There was the American Public Health Association. They had established committees to go out and do nationwide studies. Um, like they, they were documenting this, but they were still on, they were professionals, but they were still on the sidelines and they might be employed through boards of health or some kind of agency um, that they might have a connection to government, but they never really were able to get those local governments to pass citywide garbage ordinances until the 1890s. And the book that we rely on, we want to give a shout out to Charles Chapin, who was a sanitarian and they uh, 19th century. It's a 900 page book on municipal sanitation in the United States. So there were experts and they were doing research and there were lots of um, recommendations that they had. It's just that, you know, most local governments ignored them. Yeah. I mean, you know, some of the things that you say, right, uh, back in the early 19th century with sanitation experts, it's it just 
you know makes me marvel at the expertise in this country uh, i was talking uh, talking to a firefighter uh, who who is one of the leads in california you know wildfire team and he did a fire degree from colorado state university in the 1970s or something like you know there was so much steps taken to um, you know get this through and uh, which which really ama- amazes me yeah and uh, so 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 now coming back to um coming back to these three cities that that you did research on what were your major sources of uh, i mean you mentioned a book uh, but what were your major sources of uh, information uh we we went to archives so we actually had five main cities that we traveled to and we went to their archives and in those archives we looked at uh these very dusty very old books and records to track down what cities were doing and how they were doing it um and some of as the title say some of the politics that went along with um the creation of trash collection and disposal programs Kathleen, you want to talk about some of our favorite archives? We looked at um, most cities uh, produce these annual reports where all of the departments in the city uh, produce a report and they bind them together. So we would have the Department of Public Works report or the Department of Health or the Department of Streets. And so we would go through those annual reports and be able to track how the garbage collection program was developing. We also looked through sometimes people's private papers in some cases. We did rely on newspapers, although historic newspapers are tricky to use because they're partisan. So they might give you information, but you need to read between the lines. We also uh, looked at women's civic organizations, which a lot of them are really good about documenting their activities. So it was a variety of both, again, formal and informal actors. Every city has archives, but you have to know where to look for it. So you might go to a city hall and they might have the old historical records from that city in the city hall. Uh, You might go to a university library that might hold the records or a public library. In some cases, there might be a local museum that has possession of the city records. You have to know where to go for each city. They all do it the way that they do it. This is how local government works. Yeah, that's that's crazy because I, I have a friend who who is a historian and he he authored a book on, you know, some of the kings in India. And uh, what amazes me is how do you know where to look for these things? Or do you just keep on looking till you find what you what you want to find? Uh, is there a method to this so-called madness? Yeah, so we, yeah, at first you're just searching blindly. You just look for city archives, New Orleans, and then hope that you happen upon a place where you can see a collection. But even then, you need to know how different cities refer to these things. So we do have a story where, Patty, if you remember where we went wrong first, but we were looking in the Department of Public Works, but the garbage Pittsburgh. collection was actually housed in streets. Is that right? We were looking in Department of Public Works, but it was in health, I believe. It was in health, and we didn't know that at the time. Hmm. So, you know, the, each city does it. One of the benefits of doing archival research at the federal level on a president, for example, is that the records are very professionally maintained and very similar across different presidents, Right in presidential libraries, for example. But the lower you go down in terms of the level of government, the less, I don't, I, the more variation there is in what those records look like and how they're organized and where you're going to find them. So we never know what we're gonna walk into. Sometimes we walk into these beautiful buildings with these big oak desks and the banker's lights, just like you would imagine what research looks like you know, in a movie. And sometimes we're in the public library and the librarians have a long list of people like a big queue that they're trying to help and they're like okay here's this book I don't think it's going to help you it's probably not what you need and you know it the the records that you get from these very different places um, can be equally wonderful and equally rich so you cannot one of the lessons is you cannot judge a book by the cover because you can go into a public library and have this you know 
experience where, you know, the librarian's very busy and they say, we can't really help you very much. And they give you something and it's like hitting, hitting the jackpot. So very different depending on where we were. Wow. And, and we are talking about a time which does not have too many digitized records, right? So you can't, you can't do anything on the internet. Well, that's funny you ask that because we worked on this project for so long that when we started, there weren't many digitized records, but now I believe there are more. Yours um, so, is one. Yeah. So, and actually speaking of that, the digitized records are a great way to get started um, because you could go and maybe, um, you know, through Hathi Trust or Google Books, you might be able to find annual reports from a city and you could at least familiarize yourself with that city. You know, you may, might be able to find, oh, here's the department where they house the garbage collection. But you probably, it doesn't replace going to the archive in, in many cases. You really do want to look at the originals and you want to get the complete record, whereas there might just be kind of scattershot, you know, availability on digitized records. Interesting. So during this period, I believe there were no private players in the waste collection or sanitation industry. It was just the city governments or the local governments who did the who did the job. No, there were private players. That's how we got started going down this rabbit hole is that there were three ways that cities chose to address the garbage problem. One, they would have public collections. So they would hire garbage collectors and, you know, have horses and carts and go around and collect the trash. The second one is they would say, we're just going to contract out to a business and that business can do all of those things and we'll pay them. And the third way they could do is they would say, we're not going to do anything. You know, you go out and figure it out yourself, people who live in this city. And so we were really interested in why these different strategies. So we picked cities that had each of these different strategies. That's why we had three and then we got down there, we opened up the archival records and we're like, this is, this doesn't, you know, the, the way that we had thought about it doesn't make any sense because in New Orleans, they had public, uh, public collection, which usually means here's a very developed government. They have all of these resources, all of this capacity, but you know, in the records they're saying, this is the filthiest hole in the land. And we're looking at these records and it's all women's names. And so that didn't make any sense to us at first about why women would be trash collectors and then in San Francisco, there was no public collection, but in the city, you know, if you're a resident of San Francisco, you would make your own kind of arrangement with the, with the trash collector. So there was no collection technically through government, but there was trash collection happening. And so once we realized that there were these three categories, but on the ground, they didn't look anything like what we thought they would look like then we kind of switched our, our approach and, and, you know, spent more time in the archives. Yeah. It looks like there was a lot of gender and racial issues as well when it comes to uh, trash collection. Yes. Yeah. And that came up in San Francisco. San Francisco had one of the greatest stories that we encountered because they had these private collectors who all kind of worked on their own or like in groups. And then a couple of times in the early 20th century, the city tried to take over that private collection and those private co collectors were able to resist. So one thing that they did is they were able to organize and become an association to wield power against the city. But another resource that they relied on were housewives. And so they sent out these amazing flyers that we include a few of them in the book and they appealed to housewives and they appealed using these racially coded messages they would indicate like, hey, you know who your garbage collector is, but if the city takes over, there might be unknown men coming around to your house taking your garbage. Wow. <laughs> that is crazy. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so, and I'm just putting myself in the shoes of someone who was born in that era. And I'm like, you know, here I am throwing my trash in the nearest water body and whatnot. Um, and now there is a private player or a government or the government who is saying, hey, you need to pay us X amount of money so that we can collect your collect your garbage. And how did people react to that? Were people okay just paying it because they they obviously knew the upsides of it that, hey, if the garbage gets collected properly, gets disposed 
the cities are cleaner or was that the incentive or was there some other you know uh, interesting ways that people were manipulated no they did not like this and it wasn't just about paying it was the fact that if i'm used to throwing my trash in the local water body or if i'm used to giving it to the scavenger who comes by the government coming in and telling me I need to take my trash out at 8 p.m. on a Thursday night and I need to put it in this particular barrel or this particular box with this kind of lid and then I need to bring it back at a particular time and put it back in my house. That didn't go over well. They did not like the very prescriptive rules that went along with these uh, kind of these more systematic trash collection services. And a lot of times they fought back and they would say, we're not going to do this. And in the case of New Orleans, which is one of our favorite cases, the um, the mayor said, well, you either follow these rules or we will fine you or we will arrest you and throw you in jail. Arrest you. you. Arrest you and throw you in jail. And so that did not go over well. Um, and so other cities took a much um, softer approach and then they used women's civic organizations. That mayor probably didn't do, win too many elections after that. No, actually thrown out of office right after that. <laughs> ah, wow. Fascinating. Um, we spoke at length about uh, the garbage collection aspect. Now, I want to dive deep into some of the politics and some of the dark sides of trash collection from, from those days. Um, anything interesting you found, Kathleen? What do you mean by the dark side? I'm sorry. Can you... Uh, just just politics. Uh was there any sneaky ways that uh, governments used to operate? Like, for instance, you know, I was uh, I was just reading about this where uh, jobs were handed out to uh, handed out on the basis of party loyalty, oh, absentee yeah. workers, and and so on and so forth. Yeah. So I think uh, one thing we found was I've mentioned these annual reports we would look at. So the Department of Public Works, the Department of Health, all the different departments would report out each year. And what was so funny was that each year they would say, oh, garbage collection is satisfactory. It's going really well. And then the next year, a new mayoral administration might be in office with new officials and they would say, Garbage collection is going well, but boy, did we walk into such a mess that the prior administration did an awful job. So we found that to be pretty much a pattern that each administration would brag about how well they were doing, but the next administration would point out all the negligence and incompetence of that prior regime. So, yeah. Did they have statistics to support this or was this just, you know, pointing fingers um, at each other? They would. They would say, you know, the carts are broken or something like that. But other times they might just say, well, people are complaining about the garbage collectors. And that is where we thought, hmm, the garbage collectors who were primarily black men are being blamed. And that's when we understood that the administration was trying to deflect blame from itself by blaming the collector. So whenever they did produce these kind of quasi statistics, that was often a signal to us that they were trying to deflect blame from themselves. Hmm. It's interesting you point out the fact that, you know, black people were mostly the trash collectors and it uh, it takes me back to another article that I read about tipping culture in America, uh, where uh, post uh, post uh, the emancipation, uh, black people were or black women mostly were were employed in uh, restaurants, and they were paid such low wage that they had to rely on tips. And it still continues. the The whole sub minimum wage is like two dollars or three dollars, and and they have to rely on uh, on that. I mean, it's it's amazing. I mean, in a bad way <laughs> to see how. Um, even though we stopped racism long back, there are these subtle things that are still sort of intertwined in the society. And uh, sometimes it has impacted so many generations from, from those days. You know, it's, it's that's such a great point. And, and it does show us that, you know, all of these different occupations can be positioned in all different 
different ways depending on the status of the people who were you know predominantly in that position at that time and garbage collection has had the same thing right so by the mid-20th century there may have been cities that had uh, unionized garbage collection and a uh, garbage collection was a good solid job or you know a route to the middle class um and also we can continue to think about garbage collection because garbage collection continues to be one of the most dangerous jobs in America. And, you know, it, they're dealing with these contraptions, right? That can, you know, chop your arm off or it's just, it is really a dangerous, dangerous job. And we don't often perceive it that way. But once in a while, you will see garbage collectors mobilizing and pointing out um, the need for uh, safe working workplace conditions, but also um, they may point out how important their work is to everyone else. And we tend not to notice them until they strike. And when they stop picking up the garbage, then we really notice how crucial their work is to all of us. Yeah, we, we take it for granted now, right? Um, we do. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing that you point out um, about, you know, not so safe working conditions, uh, or rather unsafe working conditions, let's, let's be honest. Uh, so now in 2023, we have, you know, segregation of waste and uh, putting waste in different bins and recycling and so on. Uh, when did this whole recycling become a thing? Uh, was it a part of your research? Uh, was it all landfill back in those days? How was the distribution like? So what's interesting is that we are returning to practices that were in place, you know, more than a century ago. And so Kathleen was talking about the scavengers and a lot of early scavengers would go and they would find, you know, bits of cloth, which they would then sell to the mills to make new, you know, new textile products. And so scavengers went out and collected materials, metals, cloths, um, et cetera, that could be sold and that could be used for other purposes. So I think the original recyclers, it wasn't about the environment at that point, And it wasn't about producing too much waste. It was about um, the economy and, you know, coming up with, with a way to make money and to support people. So you have the same. So now it's very interesting. And, you know, these trash, when they started creating these trash programs, depending on how they got rid of the trash, residents would have to separate their trash because there's certain things that can be disposed of in a particular way and certain things that cannot. So we are returning to a, this is so interesting when we're working on this because we're returning to a lot of the same kinds of issues that we saw more than a century ago and a lot of the same kinds of difficulties in getting people to sort their trash and properly dispose of their trash, which they also had to deal with many, many years ago. Mm. Yeah, I'm quite amazed at uh, some of the landfills. I mean, land we don't usually see landfills in your in our daily commute to work or whatever. But then when you see one, you kind of understand how much waste we all generate. Um, so was landfill, so were landfills, you know, uh, you know, judiciously picked uh, the, the sites for, for those landfills? Uh, or is there any sort of method on, on how uh, the location of a landfill was? Picked? That's a great question. And, you know, for some cities, they wanted trash because they could bury the trash and actually expand the footprint of the city, right? So a city like Charleston, which was on a peninsula, could actually bury trash along the side to build up the land on the outer edges of the city. So that's, you know, some cities did that. But what we really found was that if a city was dumping, they didn't call them landfills, they would just say they're dumping. It was often on the outskirts of the city, right? But eventually the cities grew through the 20th century and caught up to the landfills. So the practice now is that landfills are not usually now at the edge of the city. So a city like New York is sending its uh, waste to Pennsylvania, Ohio, right? It's sending it out um, and it's going to be poor rural communities that are actually making money by, you know, just renting out their land to serve as landfill for New York City. So that's a different practice of social and economic inequity that we're seeing in the 21st century. Oh, so if you're a city, then you can rent out the space by making some of your land landfill. Yeah. Wow, that is incredible. Yeah. I had but no it's core communities, right? It, so it might be like a former, former coal mining community, for example, whose industry has died away. And this is their new, this is one of their new industries. 
which yes. is accepting waste from from a big city. Yes, and the residents don't like it. Yeah, but uh, who who makes the decision? Is it, is it just the upper administration who makes the decision? Is there no town hall or opinion or something? I think a lot of these places don't have a lot of uh, options. And so city officials, you know, even if they're acting in the best interest of the city, think that they don't have many options to fund all the other kinds of services a city would need and to provide a few jobs for a few people in the in yeah. And I think one of the classic case that I can think of is uh, Milpitas here in the Bay Area. I think Milpitas was quite the outskirts or the suburb uh, back in those days. Now the Bay Area has grown so much that Milpitas is pretty much encompassing the greater San Francisco Bay Area. And it's been a problem. Um, uh, I, I used to live in San Diego and the, the, there was a landfill, I think, in just north of San Diego. Uh, and they moved the landfill and they constructed a road on top of the landfill and landfill. I think it's a classic case where, you know, land just sort of subsides and then the road started to have like undulations and all of that. So, I mean, the, the impact is, is massive. Um, yeah. Just, just remembered those days. So now uh, coming to 2023, we have these private players, you know, waste management and a couple of other companies who handle uh, for the most part, right? Uh, trash collection. Uh, with these private players, has it sort of become a monopoly? Uh, you know, with you know, it's it's becoming something like the cellular service, right? Uh, Verizon, AT and T, um, and uh, I don't know the third one, Sprint. Yeah, uh, is it is it getting monopolized, or uh, should governments take over trash collection, or is handing it over to private players the the best way to go about it? I think it's mixed, right? So some cities have public collection, some cities have private collection, some towns have no collection and you have to take your waste to the dump. Some cities like New York have both public and private collection. So the city picks up residence trash and private collectors come for business uh, waste. So there is no one, uh, just just like what we say, there is no one way that uh, trash is is uh, collected in cities and no one way that it's disposed of as well. Hmm. Uh, and, do and go, kind of circling back to a point we made in the beginning, even if collection is private, doesn't mean the government has relinquished control to the private contractor. Cities can continue to use that contract to instill the obligations of the contractor to fill public purposes. So it's still public. It's still serving the public. It's just that the resource is private. So there's still that space. If they if they require improvement, there's definitely a space for the public to come in and change that the the kind of activity of that private contractor. So the local government still has an eye on yes. what is being done yes. and, and so on. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I know you focus primarily on America and these three cities that you were talking about, but uh, did you delve into how things were being done in other countries and did U.S. learn from them uh, on, on how to do things better or did you have, did you observe a country that could potentially serve as a role model? Singapore comes to mind, it. Singapore comes yeah. to mind. We did not study other countries, but we did find those sanitarians who did all that research in the 1880s and 1890s and early 1900s. They looked at other cities and they also looked at other countries. Um, I think they were primarily European countries. I know Germany, they were really interested in this disposal practice being used in Germany. So they, they were doing comparative studies and trying to collect kind of the newest innovation happening, at least across the Atlantic Ocean. Fantastic. Yeah. And that kind of makes sense, right? Because those cities were older and they probably had a rich history of or or had a, a long enough data point on how to do things uh, in a better way. So that kind of makes sense. Um, Patricia, Kathleen, what are your next plans? Are you planning on writing another book about water, sewer? Because, you know, these are things that not a lot of people know about. Uh, oh. You know, until recently, I had no idea how my from where my water comes, from, uh, how my trash, like what happens to my trash and so on. So um, it would be lovely if if you guys are into it and uh, 
would love to know what your future plans are. We would love to keep going. And thank you for your interest in garbage collection. You can see we love to talk about it. And I'm so glad we can make connections and that you have garbage stories too. And so we may continue to work our way up through the 20th century in a sequel to this book. We're thinking about it. I think one of the things that I can say that we're very interested in continuing is this idea that politics is so close to home and that we all participate in it daily. And so we like your banana peel example a lot. I think that's very striking because a lot of the things that we take for granted or that we do, we don't know how we came to do those things or how we came to see those things. And so that will be part two, even if we don't know yet exactly what it looks like. I would love some credit on that. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Um, uh, and, and now I just want to, uh, before we end this podcast, I just want to touch on political science as uh, as a profession. Um, would love to go start with Patricia and then move to Kathleen. What do you guys do on, on, on a day-to-day -day basis or uh, what do you guys research on uh, in general? I study, uh, I study public policy and state and local governments. And so I'm teaching about a lot of the things that we talked about today, a lot of uh, contemporary issues. Uh, so that's what I do. My current research project that I'm working on right now is about the opioid epidemic in New York State. So a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, my perspective is framed by um, what local governments are doing regardless of the time frame. And one thing that I have found is that students are so bored when they come into state and local government and so excited when they leave because they don't know all the things that local and state governments do and how much of it is things that they care very, very deeply about, but they just don't realize that that's the level of government that's doing those things. Yeah, and day-to-day, um, -day, I teach uh, politics and law classes here at Ohio University. Yesterday, I just uh, conducted a mock oral argument of the famous Dobbs opinion in my class, and the students pretended to be Supreme Court justices. So that's what I do as my day job, sort of. Uh, but my research, like Patty, is primarily in American political development, and my latest project is on sailors boarding houses and i'm looking yeah yeah and there's a reason for it but there, I, there there are reasons to look at the maritime history of uh the governmental authority dating back to the constitution of 1787 and i track uh seamen and maritime labor um up through about the early 20th century wow uh sounds like another walk through the rabbit hole of uh, archival papers and libraries across america <laughs> Oh, wow. Fantastic. Uh, well, thank you so much, Patricia. Thank you so much, Kathleen, for being on my show. Uh, absolutely loved it. You know, again, you know, some of the things that we take for granted, it's it's incredible to know how we got here in the first place. So um, congrats on your work. And I think the book is doing great. And congrats on all the research that you're working on. Thank you. Thanks this was so a much delight. for having us. Thank you.